Thank you, worship team, for those songs. Oh, man, what a wonderful song, especially the last one. Just reflecting upon that, that imagery and just overwhelmed by the beautiful story uh, that God had intended from uh, the eternity past and brought about even in all the foreshadowings in the Old Testament and then bringing it to completion on the cross of Christ. So what a, what a joyful thought that was, overwhelming and humbling for sure, uh, that Christ did that for us sinners. Uh, um, well, if you have your Bibles, uh, I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Hebrews. And today we begin a, a new series, a series in the book of Hebrews. And uh, it's kind of a natural transition as we finished our series in Numbers. We head over to Hebrews today. And uh, I will be kind of, uh, today's message is, is more of a, uh, <laughs> what uh, one, one scholar is called, a, uh, termed a lerman, a lerman, I think, somebody. Uh, a, a kind of a sermon in more lesson format, more like a Sunday school lesson, uh, but it is uh, intended for us as an introduction to the book of Hebrews for us, so we'll be doing kind of going to different passages, different verses all throughout the book of Hebrews. Hopefully that will uh, prepare us and equip us for this study of this wonderful book. Well, if you haven't had a chance, please do uh, be, be reading the book of Hebrews. Try to read it or, or listen to it if you have an audio book. Uh, that's always good, too. You can uh, read it in different translations, different versions, and uh, try to get yourself familiar with this book. There's a lot of Old Testament quotes and uh, references that are hard to, often hard to understand, uh, but uh, hopefully as we study together, we will grow in our love for Christ. Well, as you know, many, uh, th- I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. We Thanksgiving uh, it was just last week, and uh, I hope you had a wonderful time celebrating with your family or friends uh, and, and others. Um, but uh, it's December, first week in December. It's uh, kind of the beginning, really, of our, the Advent Christmas season. And Christmas is upon us. And as a church, of course, whenever December rolls around, it's always fitting that we begin turning our thoughts and our sermons to the birth and incarnation of Christ. In the, and in God's providence, here we are, uh, uh, just coincided with the beginning of a series in the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews is one of those wonderful books. All the books of the, of the Bible point to Jesus, but this one, uh, perhaps more than any, uh, does that uh, exceptionally well. It is a theology, really, of Christ. It's a Christology, this book is. It's, a, it's, a, it's like reading a systematic theology about Jesus Christ. Uh, that's what this book is like, uh, and I hope that uh, um, as we study it, it will cause us to grow in our understanding of Jesus, that this book is intended to magnify Christ, that for, for a people that are tempted to be distracted by everything else that goes on during Christmas season, uh, the more beautiful decorations. I know I put a lot of work into just decorating my home. I know we put a lot of plans into our Christmas plans and dinners that we do. I know we put a lot of plans into the different gifts that we might buy and prepare. I know we put a lot of plans. Some of us are going to go travel during Christmas break. And all these other things that happen during Christmas season. But there, there are temptations for us to, that would cause our eyes to be not focused and set upon Jesus. And that hopefully as we study through the Hebrews and, as the other, as, and throughout the years, and, uh, that it would cause Christ to be magnified and that we would grow in our uh, love and worship of Christ. Whether you are a new Christian, whether you are a long-time Christian, there is always more that we can learn and know about Jesus Christ. 
There's nobody in this room, I hope no one, I'm pretty sure there's no one in this room, who would say, I know all there is to know about Jesus Christ. You know, it's not, it's, it's one thing to say, well, that we know the essence of the elements of the gospel, that he, that Jesus was, came in the, and born in the flesh as a human babe, human babe, and that he grew up and lived a perfect life, and that he died on the cross for our sins, and then he was buried, and then on the third day he rose from the grave, and so that he offers salvation to everyone. And that's the essence of the gospel. We understand that. I think all of us do. But there's so much more aspects of Christ that the scriptures teach us. And I hope that we will grow in our understanding of it, especially that much of it comes out of the Old Testament. And Hebrews is sort of an interpreter for us of the Old Testament as it points to Jesus Christ. Um, Today, my goal is that in the sermon is to increase our desire, our preparation, our readiness to study the book of Hebrews. Because it is a difficult book to study. And so we want to get some background material, understanding. And uh, first of all, if you've, hopefully you've found the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is the first book in what's the section of the New Testament called the General Epistles. The General Epistles in that primarily they're just not written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, and there's the Pauline Epistles to churches, to individuals that preceded the, after the historical books, the first five historical books, then there are all those Pauline Epistles, uh, 21 books or so followed by these, this series of general epistles. And Hebrews is at the forefront of it all, uh, not only because of its length, it is the longest of the general epistles, but it also is that which in, in many ways magnifies Christ the most. It, it just focuses, it's a theology of Christ, as I've said. And this book uh, is uh, hopefully, as we will study in the years ahead, year ahead, that we will be encouraged to love Christ more. Today we're going to look at just five background material, five introductory questions that prepare us as a church to study the book of Hebrews. So five introductory questions that motivate us, inspire us, prepare us to study the book of Hebrews. And I, I know maybe you, probably many of you already are ready, but if not, it's still good to have the background material, all right? So let's take a look then at these five, and hopefully we'll, uh, it, it will uh, encourage your soul and prepare you for our study. First of all, the first introductory question that prepares us to study this book is the who. Who? Who of Hebrews? Who wrote the book of Hebrews, and who was it written to? These are questions we need to understand. Um, and uh, by the way, why do we study background material, backgrounds of books? Why well, can't I just you know, start with Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 to 4, and just kind of go through? It's important to understand the background of any book that we study, because the books were written in a certain context, certain historical setting, certain time setting, certain place, certain people. And to accurately understand the setting of those people helps us to understand its meaning for the people at that time. When we understand the meaning of the text for the people at that time, and that's interpreted all by what's going on in their lives, then we can start, after we understand this meaning to the people, we can then make, make, draw from that a principle that will connect with us. And so to understand their setting, and then we understand who we are already, and then we see where the kind of the... The parallels are, or where the similarities are, what, how we are in common, how we have in common with that the the, the original biblical setting, and then we can print, apply a, develop a principle that applies. Uh, hopefully, is is a biblical principle, and that it should, and if it's a true a biblical interpretation of principle from the passage, it'll be true of the old setting, the original setting, as well as any setting throughout history. That's that's basically about. By the way, if you want to know more about that, we're starting our quarter in Sunday school, Adult One Sunday School, how to study the Bible, and that's what we're going to learn today. Um, so come join that for, plug for Sunday school. 
Anyways, let's answer the question. First of all, who wrote the book of Hebrews? Now, Hebrews is called an epistle. It is called an epistle. That means it's called a letter. And so if it's a letter, then usually letters are written by someone, written to someone. And if, in our experience, if you read the letters that, th- that are found in the, uh, in the New Testament, by, whether by Paul or whether by Peter or, or others, this book of Hebrews does not begin like a regular letter, right? You just, you just look at it. It, it uh, begins with God after he spoke long ago to the fathers and such. And so it's, it does not contain the usual salutations, the introduction of the author, audience, and the greeting. Usually there's a greeting that begins. None of that is mentioned here whatsoever. It doesn't say, I, Paul, or I, Apollos, or I, Luke, write to you, uh, people. It doesn't contain any of that. Not only that, but nowhere else in the letter is the author identified. However, we can always try to, just a lot of, it's not unusual. There are many uh, New Testament books that are, uh, at least from the introduction, first few chapters, you don't see the author mentioned. But sometimes through the internal evidence of the book, what we can see and learn in different verses, there may be clues, maybe hints who may be the author. There are various theories on the authorship uh, of the book of Hebrews. But the, probably the earliest theory of the book of, of the authorship was in the 2nd century, uh, century A.D. Uh, one Clement of Alexandria attributed the letter to the Apostle Paul. Uh, and that perhaps is the most historically prevalent view uh, in the church history. But Martin Luther was one uh, who rejected this view. Martin Luther, being the great reformer, he rejected this view on the basis of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. In, Hebrew, in Hebrews 2, 3, it says this, How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. So the author is placing himself here as a second-generation Christian, not a first-generation Christian. It was spoken through the Lord. The Lord spoke it. And there were those who heard. That was the first generation, including the apostles. But he was one who heard it as a message that was confirmed by those who heard. So he, he identifies himself, and along with the audience of this book, as a second-generation Christian. So then it, it couldn't have been any of the 12, couldn't have been written by any of the apostles, it could not have been written by Paul, because Paul himself was an eyewitness of Christ on the road to Damascus. Other proposed authors then are these second-generation Christians who may not have seen Christ. Some people have proposed Barnabas, some have proposed Apollos or Luke. But to this day, and if you can read more, many of the commentaries, they'll continue, they spend a lot of pages written about it. But then Origen, who lived around the 2nd and 3rd century B.C., his statement on the authorship is still the best. And he wrote, whoever wrote the epistle, truly only God knows. And that he's right, only God does know. Uh, it is anonymous, and so we don't know. I mean, we all have theories, and it's kind of seminarians like to debate that. I remember in, I remember in seminary uh, having fun debates about that with my fellow seminarians as well. But anyways, it is an anonymous book. But while we do not know the human author, we do know, of course, the divine author, right? This is the scriptures. And so God himself is the author of this book. The book even begins with a reminder that, who, that God is the one who speaks. We've looked at this verse not too long ago. The book even begins with an introduction that emphasized that God had spoken in the past through the Old Testament prophets, and God had spoken in his son. And in, in, a, in this case, in the book of Hebrews, God is speaking through this New Testament author. So 
the authorship is anonymous, but it is a second-generation Christian. And I believe there's some relevance to that uh, for us in our interpretation a little bit later. But next, we answer, to whom was the book of Hebrews written? Whom was the book of Hebrews written? Well, uh, again, no salutation indicating the recipients of this book, right? So we don't know. But chapter 3, verse 2 of Hebrews gives us some insight. There the author of Hebrews writes, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Notice that the author calls the recipients of other brethren. So that's, that's always a big clue. And we see that throughout the book of Hebrews. Indicating that the audience is an audience of professing Christians. Probably a church. It was probably written to a church or a group of Christians somewhere. Uh, we might further ask ourselves, were these Gentile Christians, Jewish Christians? course, from the, the big clue is the title of the book. The title is, uh, as early as the end of the second century, it, had the, it gained the title to the Hebrews. The titles are not uh, inspired scripture, uh, but, you know, this is a pretty early on. At the very least, it indicates that at second century B.C., or A.D., I'm sorry, at second century A.D., that the people who lived at that point, and that's pretty much closer to the New Testament day era than we are, they believe that it was written toward a, to a Hebrew audience. And this view has been, is widely accepted. What's more, though, we see it probably confirmed, or likely confirmed, as with the internal evidence of the book. You read the book, you kind of just flip through it even now, you just look through it, and if you're like, if you're like uh, my NAS, you see a lot of places where it's, uh, there are quotations of the Old Testament. They're all in the small caps. Almost every chapter has something where it's in small caps. It's, oh, that's an Old Testament quote, Old Testament reference. And so there's a lot of Old Testament quotes, a lot of Old Testament reference, mostly from the taken out of the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. So the audience there would be the people who would be familiar with the Greek Septuagint would have been Jewish people of a Greek background or Gentile background. Okay, So it wouldn't have been necessarily... People in, uh, not as likely as Jerusalem, though they use the Septuagint as well, but a, a, a Gentile background, uh, Jewish, or Jewish background Christians, or not, Gentile background Jewish Christians. So I hope you get that right. Um, so the recipients of the epistle then are primarily professing Christians uh, with a Jewish, they have a, they're, they're Jewish in their a cult in their heritage, but they're probably living uh, in, in the Gentile world. And they were, as we see in chapter 3, verse 12, they were in danger of, having an, of falling away because they had of a, having an unbelieving heart of falling away. Now, that's of course, which we're always shocked, and I know that uh, I think one of our Sunday school classes actually recently studied the book of Hebrews, and you guys wrestled with some of these uh, warning texts. Um, but the reality is and, or, that as we live in the Christian life, there are many people who are, we worship together with, we, we serve together, we, and we, as far as we can tell, they would profess the name of Christ, they're professing Christians, but none of us can see the heart. I cannot guarantee that, I, that you are a Christian, because I cannot see into your heart. Only God knows who is in your heart. I can see evidences, perhaps, of your salvation, but I don't know, because it, you can fake many of the fruits, fake in many ways, but it, the reality is only God knows. And so in a church, there are many professing Christians, and, there are, and as a reality, there are going to be those who are professing Christians that are themselves self-deceived. Not intentionally, I hope not, but many times they're self-deceived. 
they say they believe in Jesus, but they're actually trusting in something else. They're trusting in themselves or they're trusting in, uh, you know, their works to save them in their heart of hearts. And the reality is that they'll go throughout most of life professing Christ, and you never know when they're genuine until trials come. And when trials come, that shows what's in the heart. It shows us. And when it tempts, and when it gets hard, as we're going to see uh, more, when the trials come, there are the belief, those professing Christians are tempted to fall away. And so this book is written to this Jewish audience, and many of them are genuine believers, but among them are some who, are, who may fall away because they're not genuine believers. This book is written, then, to that audience, Jewish Christians living abroad, keeping to, that, to warn them from falling away from the living God. It's written to keep the believers in that time from falling away, and if you take that principle and see it today, it's the same principle still works for us. It's written for us that you and I here at Essa Bible, we all who profess faith in Christ, I, I'm glad we do, and I praise the Lord that we do. But when trials come, and many of you have lived enough through trials, there are those times, especially for young Christians too, you're tempted to fall away. There's some difficulty in the church. There's some difficulty in your life. There's a life-threatening illness. And those are times when you really wrestle. And you're, in, at those times, you will see if your faith is real. Because when those times come, those who belong to Christ will hold on to Christ. And those who don't will run away and fall away often. And that's, so this, we need this book for this reason. It's to help us, to, to encourage us to hold on to Jesus. To make sure that we have faith in Christ and Christ alone. All right, that's the... That's the who, okay? Second question that we want to answer, uh, introductory question, is the when. The when of Hebrews. And the when of Hebrews just uh, gives us the understanding of what is the date of this letter. When was this letter written? Well, uh, in short, most likely, it was written before A.D. 70. That's the uh, kind of the, the, long, the oldest date, I, I believe. I know some, there are a few scholars that believe it's written later. But most likely it's before AD 70, as there is no mention in this whole book that's, uh, that talks about priests, that talks about sacrifices, that talks about uh, the, the, uh, the rituals that they practice, and yet there's no mention of the temple's destruction, which occurred in AD 70. It would have been a very significant uh, thing to mention here in this, uh, as it talks about these things. And what's more, if the temple had been destroyed and they did speak about it, it would have likely these matters would have been spoken of in the past tense. But what we find in the book of Hebrews, that whenever it talks about the priests, whenever it talks about the sacrifices, whenever it talks about anything with regards to the worship of Israel, it speaks of them in the present tense. Present tense. As if they're indicating that they, most likely at least, they're indicating that these things are still ongoing. So it's very likely, most likely, that this is still happening while the temple still exists. So eighty seventy is kind of the the upper uh, limit. But there are several other internal time markers within Hebrews. Already from chapter 2, verse 3, we know that there were Christians. These were not first-generation Christians, but second-generation Christians. So first-generation Christians, you would expect theirs to be, their date would be around 30 or 40 A.D. Second-generation Christians, where their books would be written more in the 50 or 60 or 70, even upwards to 90 A.D. In fact, according to uh, Hebrews 13.7, there was some time for even some of their leaders to have passed away. 
We know that uh, chapter 13, from chapter 13, verse 23, that Timothy was still alive. He was, there's a mention here that he was released from prison. So for sure, we're talking first century. Um, but let me show you a few verses. Hebrews 5.12 indicates that these, these second-generation Christians are just not, they're not baby Christians either. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. The implication that these should be mature believers. So they're not new believers. They're not just like a year old. But maybe this implies a couple years, 10 years, 5 years, 10 years later, maybe even uh, a decade or greater. What's more, they, they've also, as believers, have suffered persecution already. Hebrews 10, 32. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, so that's when they believed, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. It's implying that when they were new Christians, they experienced suffering. And though they suffered, in that way they, and they had been persecuted, they had not, as a congregation, suffered any death yet for their faith. And no one was martyred for their faith. And we grasp, grasp this from Hebrews 12.4. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And so putting all this data together, the majority of scholars then place this, the data of Hebrews, in a time when there's persecution, they've experienced persecution, but not the, a severe persecution where people are dying. So um, many scholars, most majority of scholars, will place this book written in about the early 60s, early 60s, definitely before A.D. 64. A.D. 64 is, the, is a key date because A.D. 64 is when Nero goes crazy and starts killing all the Christians, rounding up all the Christians and killing them in Rome. Uh, he starts blaming the fire uh, when Rome's burning upon the Christians, and the, there's a lot of, there's a huge persecution, burning them up, and all that kind of things. Uh, that's in AD 64. So most likely before AD 64, this is written uh, probably in the early 60s time period. Now, closely related to this second matter of when is this matter of where. That's the third question I want to ask. Where? Where of Hebrews? Where's the location? Where are these people? And, and this one's, you know, a little bit tenuous. Uh, it's, uh, there's only one verse that kind of speaks to it. But we're assuming a Jewish Christian audience. Where are these Jewish Christians living? Jewish Christians are like the Chinese. They're everywhere, okay? They're like just, uh, they're just everywhere. And where you go anywhere, there's usually a significant Jewish Christian audience there or Jewish audience there, Jewish people there. There's usually a synagogue there. Where were they living? They were living in almost any major city in that time, in that era. But the only place marker that we get in the book is a, comes from the greeting, or the greeting at the end of the book in Hebrews 13, 24. And it's this simple rephrase, greet all of your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Now, it is possible, admittedly, that the author is writing from Italy and says, those who are from Italy greet you. But the wording here is just more likely indicating that there are people from Italy with him as he writes the letter to the recipients. Um, and in this case, the recipients then would likely be in Italy because he's, he's somewhere else. He's writing to believe these Jewish Christians in Italy, or perhaps even the city of Rome. And, and this would kind of further fit more and that connects more with the dating we're talking about, the dating of early 60s. These believers, when they became believers around A.D. 49, um, many of them, there was a, a church uh, shortly after established, there was a A.D. 49, uh, Emperor Claudius began a, a persecution. We read, that's why Apollos, that's why, and his wife uh, were cast out of Rome. And so there was that early persecution of the Christians because of 
over, um, it's actually even referenced in one of the extra biblical materials. Uh, there was a disagreement among the Jews about someone named Crestus and probably Christ. Um, and so there was this persecution. They had all, many of them had fled. And so now 15 years later, it's about 60 AD or so, uh, the increased persecution is increasing again. Uh, we see the shadow of increased persecution from Emperor Nero. And the threat of persecution, probably not only from uh, their fellow Jews or from even the Roman government, was tempting these believers who had themselves were second generation Christians. They had believed by faith in Christ by the word from these other these apostles, these other uh, people who had seen Jesus. But because they, they had never seen Christ, they were, they were tempted to fall away. And so the author writes this letter then to these believers facing persecution, most likely in Italy, Rome, about to, about to face a persecution that is a whole level higher than what they've ever faced before. And he's writing to them because they're already starting to be tempted to fall away. He says, he writes to them to hold on to your faith. Keep holding on to your faith. Hold on to Jesus. Whatever you are tempted to, to turn away to, and particularly many of them were turning back to Judaism, that would have been a safer uh, kind of place to be a part of rather than this new cult, in a sense, of, of Christ. He says, reminds them that Christ, remember that Christ is better. Better than anything you're going to turn back to. Worth even the sacrifice that you may make for Christ. And so, with that, the, the where and the when, um, we can tie that back to our day. In our day, we know that we ourselves are somewhat persecuted for our faith. Nowhere near China levels or uh, other places in the world. Uh, but we know, and most of you know, probably if you work in the working world, that there are certain subjects uh, that you cannot bring up in your workplace lest you be labeled a bigot, uh, labeled someone that is hateful, someone uh, who is labeled as a narrow-minded, and worse, you don't just get labeled, but you may get canceled, you may get uh, forced out or marginalized. I think uh, many of you understand that, because if you dare to stand up to some of the things that the world is saying in your workplace, uh, you do so at the risk of your job, Right? And so, in light of that, it, these situations that are a world, it, it could get worse. And that temptation, especially as we face, and we as may face increasing persecution, may tempt some of us to turn away from following Jesus. And so, we need this book to remind us that Christ is better. Hold on to Jesus Christ. Now, we move on to the fourth question that I want to ask to answer uh, to prepare us to study the book of Hebrews, and that is the what of Hebrews. The what. What is the book of Hebrews? You know, we do call it an epistle, and it is written. It is a written uh, to an audience. It's missing, if you already mentioned, the traditional letter salutations. There is, however, in the end of the book, chapter 13, verse 20 and 25, the common epistolary endings, including a benediction, some news about somebody, Timothy in this case, brief greetings of, you know, the, the saints in from Italy greet you, or, and then there's a final benediction, of course, the grace be with you all. So it is a letter in that, how it ends. 
But in the conclusion, it's, it's something more than a letter. It's, it's not quite like the regular letters, as we have kind of pointed out. There's one verse near the ending conclusion that stands out to us. And that's in chapter 13, verse 22, where the author writes this phrase. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. It's amazing. He's written to you briefly, 13 chapters, and that's brief, right? That's longer than many of the letters that Paul wrote. But it is, nevertheless, he wrote it briefly because of the subject matter. You could take, look at the whole Bible fills it up, and this would not be complete. But anyways, he calls his letter a word of exhortation, and that's the singular phrase. That is what this letter is. This letter, this book of Hebrews, this epistle, is a word of exhortation to God's people. It is full of exhortation, full of commands, full of, uh, of exhortations to the people of God. And the most intriguing feature of Hebrews, whenever you study Hebrews, the most intriguing feature, everybody always usually, you know, our eyes kind of just light up when we get to those passages, we're intrigued, are what's known as those warning passages. You, you know the warning passages, right? There are five in all, and one in chapter 2, chapter, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 6, Chapter 10 and chapter 12, okay? And there's debate about where the exact those warm passages end and, uh, begin and end, but those are generally where they're found. And in brief, all five of these warning passages are exhorting the believers, the Jewish Christians, all the same thing. They're exhorting them to not fall away. Do not fall away. In between all these, these five exhortations to don't fall away, don't turn away, don't uh, run away, are a bunch of explanations. Explanations from Old Testament passages on this, uh, from Old Testament passages. It reads very similar to Jewish, what's called Jewish Midrash. Jewish Midrash is like, it's like a, it's basically a commentary on the Old Testament. They quote some Old Testament texts, and then they write what they think about it. It's like, it's like Old Testament, like your, our commentaries that we might read in our, in our libraries. And so this letter reads like that. It's reading, it's as if it's explaining Old Testament passages and then exhorts, then explains and exhorts, explains and exhorts. What does that sound like? A sermon, right? That's what we do when we, when we preach. We explain the text. We base it upon the text. We explain the text. And then we exhort from the text. And that's what this letter is. It's a word of exhortation. And so many scholars call this a written sermon, a written sermon, a sermon in epistolary form. In fact, the only other time that the phrase word of exhortation appears in the New Testament is Acts 13, 15. And there we read this. After the reading of the law and the prophets, <coughs> excuse me, the synagogue officials sent to them saying, brethren, this is Paul and Barnabas, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Here it is. This is the, the gathering of the synagogue on Saturday. And they're gathering again. What they do in the synagogue is that they read the scriptures, and then someone, any man who is a, can, can get up and, and speak and exhort from, this, from the scriptures. And so it basically, it's a, it's a sermon. And so what we have here is a written word of exhortation, a sermon in letter form. It's a, it's, a, it's a message. And usually sermons and messages have one main point. And amazingly, praise God, this book actually tells us what the main book Point is the main point of this ex word of exhortation is found in Hebrews chapter eight verse one. Here's the main point 
the main lesson, the main uh, truth that is communicated in this book. Hebrews 8.1 reads, Now the main point in what has been said is this. Don't you love that? The main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. The main point is simply that Jesus is the superior high priest. He's the better high priest. He's the perfect high priest. In the Old Testament, there were many of them had priests. Many of them were Levites. And then there was one who was chosen by God, usually a descendant of Aaron uh, and eventually Eliezer, etc., who was the high, served as high priest until they died. And every high priest, and, uh, as well as all the priests, they served as intermediators between God and men. And uh, the Jewish felt, people felt pride in, in, their, in their priesthood, in their priests, especially the Levites. They felt pride in their sacrifices, their worship. They had pride in their temple. They had pride in their law. These, they had pride in their rituals. Paul would write about this elsewhere, the things he boasted in as a Jewish person. But all those things, when you come to understand, as we're going to come to understand the Hebrews, they were all, even though as glorious and wonderful as they are, given by God as they are, they were all shadows of what, who, of what, or really who is to come. They're all shadows of Jesus. When Jesus came, he fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the temple. He fulfilled the sacrifice, fulfilled the rituals, fulfilled the priesthood. He is the greater high priest, the superior high priest. And the, basically, this is the main point of the whole book of Hebrews that is explained throughout all the different passages of how he is the greater high priest. It takes up the majority of Hebrews. He is the better priest, the better sacrifice, the better servant, the better Moses, prophet, etc., etc., better than the angels, etc. But all that explanation... That's, that's the main point, but the main point is not the purpose of the book. It's like all aims for a purpose. And hopefully, as we study this book, we're going to understand, first of all, the main point. We're going to see how Christ is better. That's, that's very helpful. We need to understand. We need to not only understand, we need to believe that Christ is better. Because when we choose to fall away, when we choose to sin, in our minds, what we're thinking is that Christ is not better. This sin is better than what Christ has to offer me. That's what I think, and if I would stop to think about it at that moment. And that is true for all of us, is we forget how great Christ is, and we, forget, we think other things, other people, other relationships, other possessions, other pursuits are better than Christ. But the main point drives for us a main purpose, the main uh, exhortation, which leads us to our final question of the Why? Why of Hebrews? What is, why is Hebrews written? Communicating Christ's superiority as a high priest is for the purpose of strengthening the faith of the professing Christians who were tempted to fall away. It's written to strengthen them, to exhort them to not fall away and to strengthen them in their Conch and their convictions and their faith in Christ. Let me just read for you from the various uh, a verse from each of the various warnings that will give us the uh, hopefully give you a, a good sense of what the, the main purpose is of the book. Listen to all the various warnings. I'll take one verse from each warning. 
Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. Pay attention to the gospel. Pay attention to the truths that we heard so that we do not drift away from it. The author exhorts the the Hebrew Christians to not drift away from Christ. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, second warning passage. There we read, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. We're exhorted here to not fall away from Christ. Hebrews 6, 6, a third warning passage. And then have fallen away. So it talks about people who had professed faith, but then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. That's a difficult passage to interpret, but the, you can't miss the main idea that you're not to, we're not to fall away again. And then Hebrews 10.35, the fourth warning. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. There's a, when in faith is expressed by a confidence in the truths that we believe in, right? The things that we don't see. That's what he eventually gets to Hebrews 11, what faith is. Faith is, is confidence in Christ. Don't throw away your confidence, your faith in Christ. We're not to do that. And then lastly, Hebrews 12, 25, the final warning passage. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And that is where here we resort to not turn, not refuse and turn away. Uh, the latter part, turn, the latter part of the verse, turn away from Christ. Don't refuse his, his word to us and turn away from him. So a little different wording in each way, but I think if you take them all together, they're conveying the same thing. Don't fall away. Don't turn away. Don't run away. Don't throw away. Live long enough as a believer in a fallen world, and you will face temptation to fall away. I have, and I'm sure you have. Times when you just are bitter, or you're fearful, or you're maybe so overwhelmed, lost, what to do. And then you, you focus on your problem, and you lose sight of Christ. When that time comes, when that time comes in your life, as it has many times, what keeps you from falling away is what you understand and believe about Christ. That will make the difference in how you and I respond. It does. You may go home this week and receive terrible news, and it will be heartbreaking. Something you can't change, something's out of your control. At that moment, what, what do you think? What will you think? Oh, why is this happening? Or Christ is in control. Christ, you died for me. My eternal destiny is secure in you. I know, I, I'm not in control of this thing, but I know you are in control. You're the sovereign king of kings. I want to hold on to you. You're the one who's solved all my real problems of sin and death, you will take care of this problem too. But many people will, that have, when tempted, 
will come to, may find themselves having an unbelieving heart. And they may turn away to something else. Turn away from Christ to a, a new relationship or to a new pursuit, a new career, a new religion. They may turn away from Christ to a, a, new, a new desire or pleasure. But only if you believe that Christ is better than whatever it is you're turning away from will you find, or whatever you're turning away to, will you find the strength to resist temptation and hold on to Christ. And that's why the book of Hebrews ends in Hebrews 13, verse 8, with this wonderful truth. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. This verse is a wonderful verse. It's, sadly, it's been snatched by the charismatics and used as, the refer- as a key verse for you know, speaking in tongues and, and doing crazy things. But this verse, in the context of Hebrews, in the context of Hebrews, reminds us that Jesus Christ never changes. The Christ who, who we hear, heard about by, in previous generations that we read about in the Old Testament, that we read about in the New Testament, he is still the same. The one who was able to deliver his people then is able to deliver his people now. The one who was able to bring comfort to his people then is the one who can bring comfort to his people now. And he is the one who will bring comfort to his people in the future and bring peace to them and save them. Christ has not changed. He is always and is always the superior high priest. Where is he now? He's always seated at the right hand of God the Father. And always because he's finished his task. The work of saving his people is done. It's accomplished. It's finished. And that secures the eternal destiny of everyone who puts their faith in him. No matter what trials, no matter what persecution, no matter what circumstances that come in this life. They will tempt us for sure. But when we remember that we have Christ, we hold on to him. Well, let me uh, wrap up with a couple of th- discussion questions for you to think about and hopefully it'll help you. Uh, just think about asking yourself how and when or if you are tempted to fall away from Christ. Maybe it's not right now, but maybe something in the past or maybe there's maybe a scenario that you can think of that maybe tempt you to fall away from Christ. <coughs> Secondly, at those times, ask yourself, what are you thinking about Christ? Most of us probably aren't thinking. They turn your brain off. But if you think about it, rationally in your brain, why did I, why am I tempted to fall away at that moment? It's because, usually it's going to be something like Christ, something about Christ in relationship to that thing that's, that's bothering you, that's, try, that's testing you. And then thirdly, just ask yourself, how can you grow in your knowledge of Christ? Uh, how can you make some practical ways you can grow in your knowledge of Christ? Definitely through the study of Hebrews, but for yourself this year, as the end of the, as the, end of the year draws near to, how can you grow in Christ? We're always growing in Christ. There's a work that God saved us in Christ for, He's perfecting it. But how can you, what can you do as, your, as a believer to grow in the knowledge of Christ? But with that, I hope we've introduced uh, the book of Hebrews well enough for you to kind of prepare us for the study. We'll hit uh, the first four verses on Christmas Day. Uh, and uh, we'll begin the new year uh, just with continuing Hebrews chapter 1. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and for the preparation that uh, these introductory questions have provide for us. And Lord, we ask that, uh, that you would, that with, though there's so much kind of, yeah, maybe kind of technical details to some, Lord, help us to understand the, the background, this, this, uh, the setting, 
the time that these, these introductory questions of this book, and even the, especially the main point and the, the purpose of the book, so that we would hold those things as, as hooks for us as we study this book of Hebrews. Remembering where we're heading and the direction that we're going to go and what we need to learn from this book and what we can pay attention to, God, may you, um, may you cause the preaching of your word through the book of Hebrews this year and the, the year to come to, cause, to make us as a church a church that loves Christ and loves you more. As you increase our knowledge of Jesus, may you magnify him in our eyes that you would make him greater than our circumstances, greater than the treasures that we, have, we pursue, that we would love Christ more than anything and anyone else so that when those trials come, when temptations come, that we will be able to resist and hold firm and hold fast to the confession of our faith. Lord, we pray that you, be, uh, that you would be glorified and fill us with a growing love and desire to know Christ more. We thank you for his sacrifice on our behalf, that he is our superior high priest. Thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.